I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Since the 17th century, the closely cut English lawn has been the mainstay of our gardens. And over the years, this classic verdant sward has become a status symbol, a badge of pride, if you will, that spread around the world. It's so ubiquitous it feels silly even pointing it out. But of course, the shorter, neater and stripier you want your lawn, the less environmental benefits it will have. An immaculate bowling green won't provide much shelter nor much food for our much-loved garden wildlife, as well as often needing lots of water and harmful pesticides to keep it looking good. So how about if we completely reimagined what our lawns could look like? Think gently swaying long grasses, colourful wildflowers like birdsfoot trefoil, clover and dandelions, the buzzing of bees busy pollinating, the fluttering of moths and butterflies floating amongst all the greenery, a rich, dynamic haven. In today's episode, we're exploring the many, many ways we can all get wilder with our lawns. It's part of a larger RHS campaign with the Wildlife Trust to celebrate how we can bring our lawns to life by gardening with nature rather than against it. First up, environmental advocate Mark Schofield will take us through the facts and figures of converting traditional lawns to wildflower meadows and grasslands. In just less than a century, we've lost 97% of wildflower-rich grassland. And what remains is isolated in fragments that cover less than 1% of the UK. Before we head to the Black Mountains in South Wales, Sue Mabberley of Nanty Beth Garden chats with us about how she manages her meadows. So I'm um, very much over the years have stopped trying to battle to grow the things that, you know, might be my first choices and actually accepting that actually what I have here is really quite nice too and to work with what we've got. And finally, we're going to the heartland of rigid lawn culture, America. Janet Crouch will share the story of her and her husband's long and difficult fight to keep their wildlife friendly front garden. A lot of times people will say things like, well, why don't you do it in your backyard? You know, the front yard is for the lawn. And no, the front yard is, is, is for everyone. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Mark Schofield has made it the focal point of his career to conserve our local green spaces. He worked with the Wildlife Trusts for almost 15 years, focusing on preserving our grasslands and helping different communities across the UK rekindle their native wildlife from its sputtering embers. 
Now he works as the Road Verges advisor for conservation charity Plant Life, where he advocates for the sustainable management of our synanthropic environments. In other words, our gardens, parks and roadsides. So let's give it over to Mark, who'll be digging into the whys of wild lawns. Today, it would be great to just imagine how we could redefine, redesign the British lawn, how we can perhaps break outside of that perceived need to mow so often to maintain something so neatly and maybe to allow nature in a little more into our garden space. When we look back at the State of Nature report in 2019, for example, we can see there that we're now aware that 58% of species are in decline across the UK. And it's thought that it took around 6,000 years for the UK's species-rich grassland to develop. But in just less than a century, we've lost 97% of wildflower-rich grassland. And what remains is isolated in fragments that cover less than 1% of the UK. And of course, the plants in our grassland, the wildflowers grassland, well, they support the rest of our ecosystem. And we have data now that's showing that there are long-term declines in abundance for butterflies and moths. Since the 1970s, we've lost a sixth of our butterflies and a quarter of our moths, and those rates of loss have not slowed. And setting that in a wider context, we have the really worrying science that's telling us that in 2017, a study in Germany of 63 nature reserves showed a decline of no less than three quarters in the insect biomass over the last 25 years. Now, of course, insects make up about two thirds of the diversity of life on Earth, and they're essential for crop pollination. And as part of ecosystems, they're keystone species. They feed our wild birds, for example. So there's very much a risk to our plants and therefore the invertebrates that they support. So we're seeing a horrific rate and scale of habitat loss for our grasslands. And quite often the pressures they're, they're facing are that they're often cut too frequently for the sake of neatness. That, of course, interrupts life cycles. It prevents wildflowers from flowering, from developing their seeds, from setting seed. Those seeds can't feed other animals. We lose the supply of, of pollen and nectar as well for our, our pollinators. But on the other hand, cuts can be made too infrequently for grassland. It's a habitat that in its natural state would depend upon wild grazing. So if we leave it by itself and walk away, then it will undergo what ecologists call vegetation succession. Now, that's where increasingly competitive plants start to replace the plants that came before them. And you'll find that tussocks start to develop in an unmown lawn after a few years, then competitive shrubs and saplings will start to move in. And if you return in about two centuries time, you'll be stood on a woodland floor with a canopy of leaves above you. So in mowing grassland, we need to find the right balance between mowing too frequently and too infrequently. Because what we're trying to do is replace the natural effect that would have been provided by wild grazing animals. Now, that often means that when we mow, we need to think carefully about how we do it. All too often, we leave the cuttings in place. Now, that, that creates a smothering mulch, and that presents a, a physical barrier to regrowing plants. Only the most 
robust, competitive plants can punch through that, that physical layer. So that the big ask is to cut and clear, to remove your cuttings when you mow, wherever possible. You can take them away and compost them. You can use that as a mulch where you're growing food to increase soil organic matter, to suppress weeds, to retain soil moisture. So it can be used in a really constructive way. But if we leave it on our mown lawns, then it will decompose and that fertility will be returned to the soil, allowing that fertility to accumulate. And that gives an unfair advantage to the more competitive plants that can outcompete the rest, leading to a loss of biodiversity. So managing your lawn for more wildflowers doesn't simply mean you know, choosing not to mow and then just walking away. We can take the approach that manages our lawn in a number of different zones based on how frequently we mow. So, of course, you know, our gardens, they need to be designed around how we want to use them and enjoy them. But we can envisage different zones where we intervene more or less frequently. So we, we might start with our functional surfaces and they might be paths or access to play equipment, to swings, trampolines, a place to throw a ball for a dog or spread out a picnic blanket to kick a ball around. Of course, these are areas that need to be short and kept short and they need to be mown frequently through the growing season, perhaps once every week or two weeks. And perhaps we might use a mower with a mulching deck or a collector mower to keep the cuttings off. But outwards from our functional areas, we might be able to entertain simply you know, cutting less frequently, collecting those cuttings when we do cut. But if we cut and collect every six to eight weeks, depending on the growth, of course, then we're allowing those wildflowers that have evolved naturally to cope with the pressure of grazing from wild animals, we're allowing those to grow. Plants full of nectar and pollen, like clovers or self-heal or bird's foot trefoil, yarrow, these are flowering through the year and a flowering lawn, for want of a better term, can frame your functional surface. Stepping outwards and upwards again from a flowering lawn, you can perhaps create a space which effectively would be a wildflower meadow. You can cut and collect that area twice a year, but giving time for the, the flowers to flower, to provide for wildlife, for seeds to develop and set. And that means simply avoiding the middle of summer from May through to August inclusive, if you can, and then reducing the height of that sward down to a close mow at the end of the season, so that there are gaps that can be colonized by wildflowers for the start of the next growth season. Of course, Stepping outwards again from a wildflower meadow, you might want to cut every couple of years on rotation. And that, of course, allows tall herbs to grow, like the cow parsleys and perhaps some docks, some brambles, some thistle. Well, they are important habitat too. We don't want those to encroach and take over, but they're hugely important for our pollinators. And then finally, softening boundaries into the bases of hedgerows is so important too. That's where if we trim perhaps with loppers every few years, encroaching suckers and saplings, then we're able to maintain something where we tolerate just a little spillover of bramble, perhaps just a ramble of a rose. And these are really important shelter during winter for the overwintering life stages of our invertebrates. Then during summer droughts, they protect wildlife as well. So really, we can paint the picture of our garden and our lawn having different zones composed of different flavours of grassland, each 
based on a different frequency of mowing, a different frequency of intervention. And we can, of course, vary the relative proportions of functional flowering and structural parts to our lawn based on how much time we have, our resources, and what we really want to achieve. But certainly throwing a lifeline to that wildflower meadow part of our lawns will deliver the best benefit in our gardens for wildlife wherever we can. I think above all, really, it's really important to remember that you know, your garden is your canvas and you hold that paintbrush. So you know, give yourself the permission to reimagine and redefine the British lawn in a way that can make your garden part of nature's recovery and part of the climate effort. So in, instead of taking perhaps a more controlling approach, where I guess we can only be disappointed if the illustration on the seed packet doesn't come true, perhaps try to create an opportunity for nature to emerge. And I promise you, you'll be delighted with the result as I have been in my own back garden. Try to view your lawn or parts of it perhaps as a, a huge perennial herbaceous border. You never need to weed, feed or water. Thanks, Mark. If you'd like more information on creating an eco-friendly lawn, see our show notes for links. I'm lucky enough to have a long, narrow suburban garden, and at the far end, there's a little patch of about 10 square metres of wildlife lawn, which I only mow once a year, and it's full of cowslips that are about to come up and make a wonderful spring display. And all summer, it'll be full of slow worms and butterflies and moths, and it's a, a wonder to behold. Then I've got a patch of lawn that's shaded by trees, and this is really difficult to care for, so I tend to let it grow quite long. And then finally, close to the house, is a much more manicured lawn, which I mow regularly every week and give a bit of grass care to it. And that's the thing about home garden lawns, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can have zones where the grass runs wild, and you can have zones where the green sward is cultivated. It's your choice, and it's good to choose something that you like and will look after in the long term. Like Mark, Sue Mabberley believes in letting some wildness into the garden. For over 40 years, she's run Nanty Beff in Wales, an RHS partner garden, and winner of the Partner Garden of the Year competition in 2022. She sees her role as an editor, someone who curates and tends to the plants she cultivates, without exerting overarching control. Today, she's here to give us a look into her idyllic garden, sharing her secrets on meadow and grassland care. Nantabeth is 10 acres of garden, and the components of it are river, pond, stream, meadow, woodlands, more formal garden around the house, a potager where we grow lots of heritage varieties of vegetables, and I suppose what's special about it is that it does blend very seamlessly into the landscape around it. So we are tucked away in a valley, we're at 1200 feet, so it's quite challenging, you would think, in terms of growing conditions, but we're quite protected. We're sheltered in a wooded valley in the Black Mountains. And I suppose the other thing that's special about it is that we welcome nature into the garden. We welcome the wild into the garden. So we're not actually trying to control nature, but we're trying to work with it. We allow lots of self-seeders, for example, and then just edit out the ones that are either growing in the wrong place or are not thriving in a particular place. It's not a flat garden, so the landscape has very much 
led the way in terms of where we can grow vegetables, for example. So we look for the flat areas to grow the vegetables on. We have sloping banks and streams and, and so on and so forth. So we're working with the shape of the landscape. So we can't impose, for example, I don't feel straight lines on the garden. So you'll find that the contours of the land actually define the shape of the garden. And in the same way with the planting, we're all, all gardeners, there are plants that you're very fond of, it may be plants that your grandmother grew in her garden or you grew up with or things like that, where you think, oh, I'd love to have, in my case, shall we use as an example, dianthus, pinks, you know, the really smelly ones that my grandmother grew in her garden, perfect for where she was. It took me a long time to realise that actually I was wasting my time trying to grow them. So I'm very much over the years have stopped trying to battle to grow the things that you know might be my first choices and actually accepting that actually what I have here is really quite nice too and to work with what we've got. In the garden here at Nantibed we have a number of areas that I suppose you could loosely describe as lawns. We tend to think of the, the patch of green outside the, the house as the lawn and then other areas of the garden you know have kind of different names. We have grassy banks Quite a few of the paths are grass as well, which requires different maintenance regimes from other areas. And we also have a meadow, and that, that's a different kind of management again. But perhaps I could start with the lawn, which is part of the cottage garden around the house. And this was here when we came 40 years ago, so I haven't sown it with a proprietary lawn grass mix or anything like that. It's just the grasses that happen to be here. And that does get mown during the summer. We start mowing in about late April, depending on what sort of spring we've had, and that gets mown about once a fortnight. And the paths do as well. But within that, there are interesting things that are happening too. So what we don't do is eradicate all the other plants that are growing in the lawn. There are all sorts of other plants like speedwell, self-heal, bugle, lawn daisies, absolutely brilliant, dandelions. My husband says, who does the mowing, he says they duck their heads when, you, when the mower goes across and that they pop again. So there are some species, what I'm saying is that, that don't mind mowing. Moss as well comes into that. So we don't try to eradicate any of these things and they actually make the lawn much more interesting, more resilient. So even the boring lawn that most people would regard as a kind of standard almost suburban lawn, uh, there are some interesting things going on there. And I mean, sitting at the breakfast table this morning, uh, blackbirds feasting on his breakfast of, of worms from the lawn. So there's lots of things that live in shortly mown grass. In other areas, we do leave the grass to carry on growing. So for example, in what I call under the washing line, which is slopes at the back of the house here, I only cut that back once a year. So that gets cut back in late February, early March, so we leave it standing all winter. So my bits under the washing line have all sorts of things like tormentil, hypericum. Just looking out of the window now, there's not much to see at this time of year, but just to jog my memory. Knapweed is another favourite one that comes in. That's the late flower, which again is really important at the end of the season. An absolute magnet for bees and butterflies later on. 
Other things like primroses, cowslips, all of these have a place in those longer areas of grass. And of course, if you leave the seed heads, things will actually start to self-seed as well. And then moving on, we have grassy paths and grassy areas in the area of the garden we call our edible forest garden. That's quite shady. The name gives it away, really. Lots of mature trees, but also shrub layers and climbing vines, hops and things like that. In the shady areas there, there's a lot of moss amongst the grass. Now, to a lot of people, moss in lawns is a problem and they want to spray it and eradicate it. We actually don't find it's a problem. And of course, in some areas of the world, you know, moss is a wonderful thing. Japanese moss gardens are absolutely spectacular. And of course, you know, in terms of wildlife benefits, I don't know if people have ever seen the nest of a long-tailed tit, for example. Absolutely fantastic, beautiful thing made entirely of mosses and lichens. So yeah, so in different areas in the garden, we, we manage those areas in different ways. And, and I think it's been very interesting just observing what happens with different management regimes. And you might say, well, well, what happens if it's all full of docks and, you know, things, nettles and things I don't want? Well, the simplest answer to that is just dig them out. And, you know, please don't put pesticides and herbicides on your lawns. That's the very last thing I would want you to do. One of the key things I hope people would embrace is to kind of relax a bit about their gardens, to enjoy them and to welcome the spontaneity that working with nature can bring. And if you've got the patience to leave a bit of your lawn and moan for a while, the excitement of actually not knowing what's going to happen there is well worth it. Thanks there to Sue. If you'd like to hear more about this wonderfully wild garden, you're in luck. Sue runs wild gardening workshops, and we've included links to them in our show notes. Over the course of Sue's 40 years at Nanty Beth, her approach has become wilder. It's a journey, one where she's used trial and error to see what works in her natural environment. I've always been brought up to see gardening in two ways. One was my father, who liked straight lines and lots of bright, colourful bedding plants, and I feel some of those are expected of me in my position. And the other was my mother, who'd loved to garden so that the hand of the gardener could not be seen. And that's sort of more to my natural inclination. So in my garden, the trees and the shrubs and the grass and lots of bulbs and wildflowers grow together to form a kind of natural environment. And of course, gardening this way is relatively inexpensive because I don't have any great need for fertilizers or pesticides and I don't have to buy many plants. And also, even in the suburban areas, I can get lots of wildlife in the garden, slow worms, hedgehogs, for example, a lot of birds. The only thing I lack is a pond and that's the next project. And last but not least, we're off to the east coast of the US, to Maryland. Janet and Jeff Crouch's front yard looks nothing like their neighbours, and that's caused a whole slew of problems. So we have a garden that takes up most of our front yard. We have some pathways for a little bit of lawn, but mostly it's a garden filled with native plants. And during the summer, it's alive with birds and bees and butterflies. We have rabbits and squirrels, a lot of deer wander through our yard. We have lots of different sorts of insects. 
and it's in sharp contrast to many neighboring lawns, which are only turf grass and kind of just look like dead zones. There's not much going on. There's not much life in contrast to our yard. When we first moved in, it was mostly lawn. And then Jeff started planting a variety of plants and it was beautiful, but there weren't a lot of birds or other animals in our yard. And then over time, as we learned more about native plant gardening, and then over time, we also stopped using pesticides and fertilizers. And we saw more and more creatures coming into our yard. The butterflies, the birds are year-round visitors. They feed on the seed heads during the winter. The hummingbirds that feed on the flowers during the summer. It's just full of life. But in 2017, we received a letter from our homeowners association demanding that we replace our entire garden with turf grass. A homeowners association is typically set up by a developer when they're starting a new community. They set up rules and regulations called bylaws that govern the community and they have an enormous amount of power over what you do in your house and your yard. And homeowners are often left in situations where there's quite an imbalance of power and they have to hire a lawyer to defend themselves while the HOA uses the homeowner's funds to try to get rid of environmentally friendly landscaping. After receiving the first bullying letter, we contacted a law firm, hired a lawyer, and then started to go through the HOA process. We had a hearing before the board, which wasn't really a hearing. It was presided over by the HOA lawyer who told me to shut up during the hearing, told my sister to be quiet when she was talking quietly about native plants and environmentally friendly landscaping. We were trying to come to some sort of resolution with the HOA, and we realized at that point that that was never going to happen. And we were getting letters from them saying that the gardens that help butterflies, birds, and other pollinators don't belong in our community or in any planned community. Our responses pointed out that this was not true and that a lot of communities promote eco-friendly pollinator gardening and that such gardens are found around our community and across the country, but they still demanded that we replace our garden with turf grass. So eventually, after about two years of living under the threat of having them destroy our garden, we filed a lawsuit against the Beach Creek Homeowners Association in August of 2019. And then during the same period of time, beginning in 2018, we contacted our local legislator and they introduced an environmentally friendly landscaping bill into the Maryland General Assembly in 2019 to 2020 and went into law on October 1st of 2021. And the law prohibits HOAs from demanding that homeowners have turf grass. And it says that they may not prohibit environmentally friendly, wildlife friendly gardening. Well, it's extraordinarily difficult to go through the process of 
fighting our homeowners association, having people drive by our home, taking pictures. It was an extremely difficult few years. But in the end, it feels good that we were able to have the law passed and know that other Marylanders will not have to go through the same thing that we did. Even though HOAs still try to get homeowners to cut down their plants and they still try to, you know, kind of go to their old ways, but now homeowners in Maryland are able to fight back with the law on their side. You know, habitat destruction over time has resulted in fewer places for animals to live. And just one yard like ours with a mixed garden of mostly native plants can provide habitat for a wide array of birds, butterflies, and other animals seeking sanctuary. So it's really, it brings us great joy to have a yard in our community that is an oasis for wildlife. A lot of times people will say things like, well, why don't you do it in your backyard? You know, the front yard is for the lawn. And you no, know, the front yard is, is, is for everyone. People need to rethink what they see as beautiful and, and important and pay attention to what's going on around us. That was Janet Crouch. If you'd like to learn more about how to bring your lawn to life, check out our annual Wild About Gardens campaign with the Wildlife Trusts. We've got exactly the information you need to transform your turf and all the reasons why going a bit more wild can make a big difference. You can find a link in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. Now that we're actually in spring, there's loads to do in your garden this week. As the soil warms up and dries out, we can get on with sowing and planting. We can go out to nurseries and garden centres and buy more plants and plant them now in confidence as long as they're hardy plants the frost won't harm them and we can plant up our vegetable gardens we can start filling the greenhouse with summer vegetables we can take the winter plants out of the containers on our patios and start putting the summer flowers in it's a really exciting time of year if you've enjoyed the show please consider giving us a review on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen It's the best way to share the love of gardening and hopefully it'll mean we see lawns come alive across the UK this spring and summer. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress 
in your local garden machinery dealer or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 